Welcome to Building Conversations, a construction podcast powered by the STO Building Group. On today's episode, STO Building Group's Vice President of Business Development, Curtis Brown, discusses the sustainability opportunities presented when repositioning buildings. Join Brian Geller, Senior Sustainability Manager at the Durst Organization, Brooks McDaniel, Senior Vice President of Building Repositioning at STO Building Group, and Jennifer Toronto, VP of Sustainability at STO Building Group, as they explore what motivates developers to invest in green building systems, from environmental, social, and governance factors, or ESG, to new emissions regulations introduced by local laws in cities across the country. Welcome to Building Conversations, the STO Building Group podcast. I'm Curtis Brown, Vice President of Business Development at STO Building Group. And today we've assembled a great panel of industry experts to discuss how sustainability is becoming an important component in many building repositioning projects. First, let's meet our panel. If you guys don't mind, I'd like to have you introduce yourselves and uh, give us a little background, where you work, uh, what you do in the industry, etc. Brian, do you mind if we start with you? Sure. My name is Brian Geller. I am with the Durst organization. I'm a senior sustainability manager here. I've been here for just over four years. Uh, my career began in architecture. I went to Parsons School of Design, uh, graduated with a master's in architecture in 2005, and I had a couple of jobs practicing architecture. My second one was as a sustainability specialist within a larger firm, ZGF Architects. Uh, I then started a green building nonprofit in Seattle called the Seattle 2030 District, which was about applying the Architecture 2030 Challenge over an entire area of downtown rather than individual buildings. I worked at Citigroup on their corporate sustainability team for three years, and I've been here, as I said, for about four and a half years. Thanks, Brian. Brooks? Hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, my name is Brooks McDaniel. I'm the Senior Vice President of Building Repositioning here at the STO Building Group. Um, I'm a licensed architect. I studied architecture with uh, with Brian uh, 20 or so years ago, so we've known each other for quite some time. Um, I worked at several architecture firms. The most recent architecture firm I worked at was Shop Architects, where I was a project director for five years, and I left Shop in 2015 and joined Extel Real Estate Development Company as in-house architect and, and VP of design and was there for about seven years and have joined the STO building group about six months ago. So I'm relatively new, but excited to be here. All right, great. Welcome aboard, Brooks. Thank you. Hey, Jen, we'll uh, finish up with you. Sure. So I'm Jennifer Toronto. I'm the vice president of sustainability for the STO building group. I started out as a superintendent out in the field uh, in the early 2000s, and I've been with the company for a little over 20 years now. So my career path really took off into sustainability probably in about the mid-2000s when we started to see some of our first lead projects. Um, and as a young you know, field ops person, I was kind of handed the reins and said, go figure this out, um, and then began training other people in our organization to passed the lead exam, uh, and then participating in projects across our entire portfolio. So here I am. Were you uh, responsible for getting us certified uh, Structure Tones offices in New York as well certified? Was that, did that fall under your umbrella? Yeah, it absolutely did. So when we were exploring um, 
moving our office, uh, we were starting to look at health and wellness in the built environment and well cropped up as one of the best uh, rating systems. So we stuck our toe in the water and uh, eventually became the first well certified project in all of New York State. Great bragging rights. Very, it's a great place to work in too. Um, sustainability is on everybody's lips lately. So in your mind, Brooks and Brian, what makes building repositioning an attractive option for a developer from a sustainability perspective? Well, why don't I uh, jump in first? Um, from, a, from a cost perspective, it's substantially cheaper and quicker to reposition an existing building versus tearing it all the way down to the ground and, and building up. And beyond that, specifically with sustainability, if you're not tearing the building down, you're retaining all of that embodied carbon that uh, was built into the existing building um, and, and adding on to it um, and, and creating you know, a, a new vision for the building. And as you create that new vision for the building, you're able to install the latest and greatest uh, MEP systems, which are much more efficient than they were even a few years ago. You can put a high-performance facade on it so you, you know, need less uh, energy to heat and cool the building. Um, and uh, not only that, but you can, you know, eliminate your local on 97 fines uh, by reducing the emissions of the existing building. So these are a few of the reasons that make it attractive from a cost and sustainability perspective. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I saw in the news I live near the Brooklyn Detention Center complex, which is being torn down this year. And I saw that the cost of demolishing that building, which is a high rise, is $59.7 million. So that's just to tear the building down. You know, when you're in a downtown core, when you talk about the value proposition, just the cost of demoing an old high rise is, is extraordinarily high. So there's certainly cost savings to be had there. I think from Durst's perspective, it's, it's interesting for us because we are a build and hold developer. We own buildings that we've built going back to the late 1950s, and we do own one building that we purchased in the 1940s. It's the only one we didn't build, but we generally hold uh, everything that we build. Maybe I'll just give a, a brief introduction to Durst. Durst is a, a family-owned and run real estate company in New York. Uh, it's, we've been around for over 100 years, and the family is still very much... Uh, running the day-to-day -day operations of the business and in full control of what we do. And they really develop everything with a very long-term perspective in mind. And, you know, as, as you can hear from what I described, are the first building that we built ourselves just down on 3rd Avenue and 42nd Street, uh, we've owned since 1958 when it was built. So that kind of gives you an idea of the, the length of time perspective that we've got. So, you know, for us, it's great to be able to renovate an asset that, that earlier generations of the family had built and kind of maintain uh, some of the character and mystery that goes along with an older building without having to tear it down and start all over again. Brooks, is that local law 97 only uh, pertain to New York or um, do all municipalities and cities have something similar? Local Law 97 is specific to New York City, uh, but there are similar laws either on the books, such as in California and Colorado and others planned um, and other municipalities. Um, I think it's it's really the wave of the future and, um, you know, fines for carbon emissions, I think you're going to be seeing nationwide in the in the coming years. You know, for a long time, uh, the Climate Mobilization Act was one of a kind. It's, it stood very much on its own. But as Brooks said, there are other locations that are starting 
to ban fossil fuel use altogether. We're starting to see that out in California. Um, and then Boston similarly passed uh, what they're calling Birdo 2.0, the Building Energy um, Reporting Disclosure Ordinance. And this requires buildings that are over 20,000 square foot um, to annually report on their emissions. So very much in line with what we're seeing with Local Law 97. Um, and there are pretty steep fines that are going to go into effect. So the, I think that, you know, Brookshire dead on. This is definitely something that we're going to start seeing expand to other municipalities over time. I was reading that the city of London uh, either has passed or is passing a similar law. But um, in lieu of fines, uh, buildings will not be able to sign new leases if they're not compliant. Uh, so very, very strict rules um, in Europe these days as well. That rolls right into my next question, actually, Brian, which I'll stick with you is uh, you mentioned Durst being a long term build and hold developer. Um, how does that influence their thinking about building refurbishment? So I think what it does generally is is plays into an overall strategy of keeping our buildings, our assets as competitive as possible and assuming that they're going to be around for uh, as long as possible. We don't really have a finite lifespan in mind when we build uh, a building. So repositioning is just a kind of a step in the process of, of maintaining our assets and keeping them, keeping them current and keeping them as competitive as possible. Brian, I'm curious, when uh, you think about uh, building repositioning or building refurbishment, do you have an established schedule that every you know, 20 years you're going to do a major overhaul of a building, or do you just sort of take it as it comes? No, we, we take it as it comes. We've just completed uh, the core and shell renovation of a building, 825 Third Avenue, which is really the first project of that type that we've done on our portfolio. Generally speaking, um, because we maintain our buildings to a very high standard, uh, it's not often that we decide to make the call to, to essentially gut renovate a building, so we don't really have a set schedule on when it happens. While we're on that subject, what are some what are some examples of, of recent successful sustainability uh, repositioning projects that you guys have been involved with? Uh, well, Brian, I'd love to hear more about uh, 825 Third Avenue. I know that project well. I, I saw the finished result, and um, I think it's a great-looking building. You did a great job with it. Um, but maybe you can tell us more about the sustainable aspects of it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so a little background on that building. That building was built in 1969 originally. Emery Roth and Sons were the architects. Uh, it's 40 floors and 530,000 square feet. And again, we were the original developers of it. We've owned it since it was built. We think it's been a, a very successful project because we had the chance, uh, as, you know, as, as, as all of you on the panel have alluded to, when you're doing a, a full renovation, we've had the chance to really think about what we want to maintain and what we want to replace and to fully modernize all of the systems within the building. So some of the most interesting things that we've done is we actually replaced uh, all of the central plant equipment. The building was originally uh, on Con Ed steam for both heating and cooling with steam-driven chillers and actually had a uh, modular chiller and boiler plant built off-site uh, and built a concrete support system for it over the existing loading dock and installed uh, the entire new plant there, which saved a lot of time. It saved space uh, within the building. And that new plant, combined with um, full replacement of pretty much all of the other equipment inside the building, according to our energy modeler, is going to reduce energy use by 44% from where the building was before the renovation happened. 
So, you know, we think that by itself is a really big deal that really puts the building much closer to in line with what you would see in a new construction uh, commercial office building. Uh, we were also able to replace the induction units around the perimeter of the offices with an active chilled beam system and fin tube radiators, which reduces the amount of space that this equipment required. So we've actually got a little bit more space in the, on each floor and we have it right at the perimeter where, where you would really want it. Uh, and we've installed view dynamic glass in the mid and high rise portions of the tower. So you can actually control the, the opacity of the, of the windows. So a lot more comfort, a lot more efficiency, but still have that charm of the, you know, kind of late madman era, uh, you know, late mid-century modern design, which, it would, which would be very hard to replicate if you were building a brand new building. Yeah, agreed. That's a cool building. I have a question for you. The new chiller plant, you guys forecasted uh, a 44% energy savings. Did that take into consideration the, the smart glass or is that above and beyond that? Uh, no, the the view glass is part of it, but that that's a number of things. That is that's basically a replacement of everything inside the building. You know, everything from fans to pumps to um, piping, controls, new BMS. It's really all of the all of the system upgrades that went into the building that that is contributing to that energy use reduction. It's a great number. I mean, it won't take long to pay back that investment on the, at that rate. Yeah, it's a it is a good number, and we're happy about that. Yeah, that that is that is impressive. You know, it's a it's funny. All of those era buildings in Midtown, so many of them were designed by Emery Roth and Sons. We see them all the time as an architecture firm, but the firm no longer exists, and which is which is surprising. A firm that was as prolific as as they were for them to um, to just no longer be around is is kind of a surprise. That's true, and we have four of them all along Third Avenue that uh, Durst built when the Third uh, Avenue L came down. Uh, 655 Third Avenue, 675, 733, and 825 are all buildings of ours that were designed by Emery Roth that were built in the 50s and 60s. How about 1155 Avenue in the Americas, Brian? That's, uh, I think those are also Emery Roth buildings, 1133 and 1155 Avenue of the Americas. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, you guys just repositioned 1155, didn't you? It looks really nice. We did, yeah. We did quite a bit of work on that one. Uh, it wasn't quite as extensive as 825, but it was extensive enough that, yeah, I would also call that uh, a repositioning. Yeah, I toured that a couple years ago with one of your leasing brokers, and I was very impressed with your little bee farm on the roof. Yeah, well, that's um, one thing that's been very rewarding about 825. I really only talked about the mechanical systems and the energy savings, which is obviously a very big deal. But Durst has a very comprehensive approach to sustainability. We have beehives on the roofs of our buildings. The other three buildings that I mentioned on 3rd Avenue, along with 205 East 42nd Street, you can kind of pick them out on Google Earth because you can see they all have green roofs on them wherever we can put the vegetation so you can see which buildings are ours. And we really have a very strong focus on material quality and the interior health of our buildings. So we have our own criteria that goes above and beyond lead or really even above well and the living building challenge for chemical exclusions uh, and you know not having any toxic chemicals in the building products that we use. So when we redid 825 because we're replacing basically everything inside, it was an opportunity to bring all of the interior finishes, all of the interior materials up to that standard that we now use for the new buildings. Brian, just a quick question on the beehives. Do you have a beekeeper on staff full-time? Not full-time, but we do have a beekeeper, uh, an outside person that we've used for many years that, that everybody loves, that who, uh, who tends to the bees. 
And we do pr produce Durst honey, which is an award-winning honey that we give to people. It's, it's quite delicious, and people do really get a kick out of it. Um, we even have a bee cam uh, where you can see in our midtown buildings uh, during the summer when the bees are active, you can see uh, exactly what they're up to on the roof coming and going. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, please put me down for a jar of honey. I will. <laughs> yeah, send me the link to the bee cam when I'm not doing anything. That might be my zen moment. <laughs> you got it. Were we going to discuss Hudson Commons? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, that's a, a project that we uh, reconstructed with Cove Properties, and it was a real success story. Uh, Cove Properties bought it from Emblem Health. The, the building originally was built in 1962 as an eight-story warehouse, and Emblem Health bought it and repositioned it in 1983. They were ahead of the curve uh, from a warehouse into an office space, um, but left it as the eight-story building. And then Cove Properties bought it and hired um, our brand, Paverini McGovern, to manage the construction of rebuilding, redeveloping, sorry, repositioning and expanding the building, uh, which was finished in 2019. So the base was retained and the core was uh, relocated and expanded and 17 stories were added on top. So it's a building that uh, has been repositioned multiple times, but it is the uh, only the third lead platinum building in New York City. Um, so sustainability was uh, was a major focus with highly efficient systems, you know, new facade, and and a focus on being being as green as possible. And it was very successful for the developer as well. They just uh, sold the building for a billion dollars. Um, made a nice return on their investment. So th there is value in in spending more on sustainability. Um, we'll, we'll come back to you. Yeah. And just sort of to tie a nice bow on all that, I think that what we're seeing across the market in general is that, you know, building repositioning pays, right? So, so Brooks, you hit on it earlier with the um, the embodied carbon, the retention of the embodied carbon in the existing building structure and components and being able to reuse as much of that as possible. But there's also other uh, components like material circularity and whatever could be salvaged out of those buildings as they're being repositioned. You know, are there opportunities for materials to be reused either within that project or within other projects across the cities? And some of that material circularity can also sort of lend itself to helping us with some of our supply chain woes that we're feeling, right? If you can pull 300, you know, wood doors out of a space and, and give them off to another project uh, with just a little bit of refurbishment, um, kind of is a win-win for everyone. We talked a little bit about the electrification of buildings, right? So no time is better than when you're, you know, doing a gut renovation to to consider moving toward the electrification of building to cutting the cord with, uh, with fossil fuels so to speak. And then that biodiversity piece, um, we've seen a lot of conversation, not, you know, with the, with both beehives and, and green roofs and, and trying to stitch together as much green space within an urban fabric as possible. I have a question. Do you think that um, Hudson Commons uh, elevated resale price was due to the fact it's sustainable? Uh, do you think that that's uh, in vogue uh, and, a, and a worthwhile investment for investors now? We've done our sustainability survey um, for a number of years in a row. The last one we did was in it was in 2019, and at the time, 74% uh, of our end users still said that lead was a valuable market differentiator for them. Um, and there have been studies since that show that lead buildings sell for more, that they garner higher uh, rent. 
than other buildings. So I would say far and away that third-party certifications still hold a lot of value in the market. So we're hearing they, they sell for more, um, they rent for more, and they are run cheaper. That's a pretty good argument right there for uh, sustainability. Absolutely. And the, and the fourth point, Curtis, is typically the cost of capital is cheaper for, for sustainable or green projects, that lenders are more interested in putting their money in a project that has green credentials to it. Now, are there local uh, municipalities or incentives from lenders to do that? You know, I think it comes from the marketplace is that so many of the end users, the corporations have ESG principles that are part of their brand or a part of their mission statement and their decision making for, for green issues extends to their choices in real estate. And a lot of the big lenders, their money is going to come from a big pension fund or, you know, some large entity that is also focused on ESG. So the desire and the drive for sustainability is, is really coming from all directions. Right. So if you think about it from the perspective of a client who has net zero carbon goals, you know, we know that 39% of the global carbon emissions come from buildings. And so if that is part of their goal, then they need to have, they have to have a, uh, a real estate portfolio that helps them, you know, reduce their overall carbon emissions um, in order to meet those ESG goals that Brooks was talking about. Well, we've heard about all the good things about sustainability. Let me ask you, what, what's, what are some of the biggest challenges associated with uh, sustainable repositioning? Doing a wholesale revision of the systems in your building is certainly a lot of work. If you are doing an occupied reposition of a building, meaning that some or all of the tenants are staying in the building, it is a real challenge to completely gut the building of systems and put the new generation of systems in, um, verging on, on too challenging. Uh, if you have an empty building and you're going to do a full refit, then by all means, from top to bottom, take everything out and start new. And, you know, you can go with an all-electric uh, air source heat pump with a DOAS system and have, um, you know, no carbon use for your heating and cooling, have um, high-quality ventilation air in the building, your risers have a smaller footprint, you're using way less energy, your operational costs are lower, so those are all good things. Um, if the building is occupied, uh, it's hard to get all of those systems into the building um, and, and keep the building operational. Um, so that's one of the challenges. Brian, was 825 3rd occupied or did you do that um, as a, a vacant repositioning? No, it was done as a vacant repositioning, which did make a lot of the things that Brooks mentioned easier. I think something that I'll add, the challenges of sustainability really depend on how far past market uh, typical practices you want to push. If you're doing things that are kind of in line with a lead silver building or maybe a, maybe a lead gold building, it might not be that hard. If you're doing things where you are requesting practices or materials or products that the team might not be familiar with or things that have not been done before, then it's, it's much more challenging. And that's where we sometimes run into challenges at Durst because we have again, such strict requirements for the products that we use in our buildings. And I'll just give an example. This isn't for 825. This is for the residential buildings that we're building. When we buy cabinetry for those buildings, we have to pre-approve all of the components that make up the pieces of the cabinet before we award the job. Once we've done that, we actually make the winning bidder 
build a mock-up of that cabinet and then send it to a lab for emissions testing to ensure that it passes the, the strictest emissions testing uh, standards that are out there. Once we've done that and the building is under construction, we will then randomly pull uh, one, type of cab one of each type of cabinet from the construction site and send it again, this time on our own, to a lab just to make sure that none of the components were switched between that mock-up design and production. So what I've just described there is not something that you would typically do. That takes a lot of education of the construction manager and of the bidder that's building the cabinetry and really of everybody else that's involved in that process. So when you push to that degree, then sustainability can be challenging, but the rewards of it you know, if we pay more attention to the products that go into, whether it's the cabinets or the walls or everything else, we might be putting more time into the design and the specification review, but we get a higher quality product out of it. In addition to the sustainability benefits, we just have much more control of exactly what's going into the building, how it's being designed and specced, uh, but it does take more education of the team up front in order to make that happen. Yeah, I, I would agree with what Brian said. I think that um, how far you're looking to push the envelope certainly does bring on more challenges, more worthwhile challenges. But if we're looking even to the the simple lead silver, lead gold goals for buildings, I would say that the biggest challenge is still that perception of first cost, you know, thinking only in terms of first cost. Um, and not necessarily thinking of it as holistic in terms of what is the return on the investment. There are still plenty of uh, times where we run into this hurdle, surprisingly. Brian, you brought up um, residential uh, sustainable projects, which I hadn't really even thought about. I was kind of more on the commercial, but I'd be interested to know, do you see bigger returns and um, demand on your um, sustainable residential? I think that awareness on the residential side is still picking up compared to commercial. I think for Class A commercial, there's been an expectation that you would have a pretty decent lead rating for, for some time now for a Class A building in a major metropolitan area. I don't think that's been the expectation for residential until fairly recently uh, for, for really big, you know, high-quality luxury uh, apartments. But I think it is starting, and, and we do find that once the residents get a taste for the features that are in the building and understand what we've done, they tend to start asking more and more and wanting to get more and more involved because it's their home. It's where they live. It's more personal than the office setting. Yeah, as a parent of a 20-year-old and a late teenager, I'm a, I am pretty confident they would pay uh, an extra amount to live in a sustainable building. And they may, especially, you know, again, because we focus on occupant health, now that people are spending more time at home, some people are working from home, uh, at least part-time, I, I think there is a bit more of a focus on the home environment than there used to be. Yeah, I was, was going to ask, what, in the residential market, do you think that it's about environmentalism or health and wellness? Like, What do, what do you see as the top interest for residential? I think it's a combination. I think it depends on the resident. I think there are some groups that will still really care about the environmental global impact. Uh, there are certainly, but I think the occupant health is certainly becoming more and more important. So I don't know if I could really, really put one above the other, but I know a lot of residents, when we do talk to them, they are interested in um, you know, the fact that when we tour them through our new building and we ask them if they smell anything, they don't really think about it. And then until we point out, look, you're in a brand new building and you can't smell anything. There's no paint smell, there's no glue smell. That takes a lot of work, and that's very good for you. Uh, you know, we provide ventilation above minimum code requirements. We have resiliency features in the building. It's just a lot of things that 
they might not realize or think about when they first walk in, but once we point them out, then there's definitely a kind of, oh, tell me more, give me more uh, attitude. So what advice would you guys have for clients looking to get the most out of their building repositioning projects in terms of maintaining design, intent, function, and, and achieving all your sustainability goals? Well, we find that the most important first step is to get a great team behind you. Uh, you want to get a great architecture firm, engineers, uh, firms that have done this type of work before. There, there are a lot of firms out there that, that know how to do this. Um, not all of them do. So make sure you're picking a great architecture team and, uh, and a great engineer. So I would say that's, that's the first step in uh, making sure that you're going to achieve your design intent and your sustainability goals uh, at the end of the job. What about what about a, a, a contractor capable of sustainability? No plug there. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, your 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 second call should be to the best contractor in the business, which of course is us. Um, we we've done this a number of times and we're very good at it. And uh, please please give us a call. <laughs> yeah. The the other thing that I would add is to really be clear about what your sustainability goals are. Right there there are different. Um, clients have different cultures and different uh, things that are most important to them. So citing, for example, whether it is environmentalism or, or health and wellness um, that really are where you want to you know, put most of your efforts. I think that helps your really good design team and your really good contractor help you hone in on what you know, we know works and what we can prove uh, at the end of the day to make your project a success. Yeah, I would agree with all those things. They're all great points. You need to have a great team and you need to have those priorities and goals set from the beginning. And I think I can just give some examples from 825 Third Avenue. For example, we wanted a lobby for the building that looked modern and clean and up to date, but we didn't want to simply lose everything that was there from the original lobby. So the flooring is new, a lot of the elements of the lobby are new, but there are these gorgeous travertine walls that are original from 1969 that go floor to ceiling that we cleaned and, and restored and maintained and are still part of the lobby. Uh, behind the walls, we replaced pretty much all of the systems, but it, it was a big cost and time savings to try to keep the original uh, ductwork, at least the main trunks going through the building. Uh, but you know they're from 1969, there was concerns about them leaking. so. We wanted to seal them with something called AeroSeal, which is a product that you can basically blow through ductwork and it will seal small leaks and cracks, uh, seal them permanently. <clears throat> we weren't sure about, or you know, AeroSeal, they're a good company, they gave us all the data that we wanted on their product. We weren't fully sure about the occupant health of it, so we actually hired an industrial hygienist to monitor the air quality in the building during and immediately after the sealing of one section so that we could actually see what, uh, you know, what sort of off-gassing, if you will, we would get. Uh, the results were incredibly low. We were very comfortable with it. We were very happy. And then we gave the green light to proceed with the rest of the building so that we were able to keep that ductwork, bring it up to the performance standards that we want, but didn't have to compromise on our overall sustainability and occupant health goals. So, you know, again, going back to the points made earlier, just having those goals in mind as early as possible and working together to achieve them is really, really important. Sounds like that was sort of a new approach with the with sealing the ductwork. Are, are there any other new trends you're seeing coming to the sustainability um, field in repositioning? 
I mean, that was one. I, there's another one. This is the first time we've been able to do this on an existing building, but we've we've kind of piloted a, a um, what we call a closed-loop drywall recycling system where we started this in our new construction projects uh, when we have drywall scraps, which, you know, this usually in a big building, there's several hundred tons of them. Rather than send them to a landfill or a recycling facility that will typically use them as alternative daily cover in a landfill, we actually partnered with a company in Pennsylvania that will take the scraps, remove the paper, uh, and reprocess all of the gypsum inside, and then send that back to uh, drywall manufacturers to be made into new drywall. So it's a fully closed loop system. Uh, we've done this on a number of new construction projects, but 825 was the first time that we were actually able to do it uh, on the demolition side. So between the demolition and construction, we were able to say uh, to send about 800 tons of both demolished drywall and new drywall scraps uh, to this processor and you know keeping it in a closed loop system. So uh, I know it was mentioned earlier, I think we're going to see more and more of a trend to uh, closed loop systems, as Jen had mentioned, uh, you know, people really wanting to pay more attention to the material streams uh, in the buildings. And we were happy that we were able to do that at 825 and, and hope to continue doing it uh, on other major renovation projects as they come up. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of good success um, with that closed loop gypsum wallboard process um, and have also started to do it with carpet, getting carpet back to the carpet manufacturers to make into new carpet or to be made up, upcycled into, you know, insulation um, as the case may be. I think that that is probably one of the places where the industry is going to start to push the envelope is how do we create some zero waste systems. Yes, I think that's that's absolutely correct, and that's why with carpet we uh, we never use broad loom carpet. Uh, we always go with tiles. We're very particular about how they're adhered so that they can always be easily removed and and recycled. Uh, so that's uh, carpet is definitely another good one to focus on. Brooks, any comments on that? Yeah, I mean the, the big one that comes to mind to me is uh, all electric buildings, which we've touched on a little bit. Um, Local Law One Fifty Four was recently passed in New York, uh, where um, there's a phase timeline, but starting in mid-2027, large buildings uh, will be required to be all electric, with a few exceptions. You can still have a, um, a fossil fuel-powered uh, backup emergency generator, but for your day-to-day -day heating and cooling of a building, uh, no gas anymore. And steam is allowed, but steam is probably going away in, in 15 or so years uh, from Con Ed. Uh, so you're left with heat pumps, electric heat pumps. And um, uh, we're seeing a lot of our clients who are looking at repositioning large, you know, million square foot office buildings in Midtown are, uh, are doing it ahead of, of the requirement. Um, even though they're not required to do it until 2027, uh, we have several projects in the works uh, that will be all electric buildings. Um, it's, we think that it's the right thing to do. The market is asking for it, um, and it, it saves energy and, uh, and eliminates that um, source of carbon from the building. One other thing, um, you know, we've talked a lot about environmental sustainability. Um, we've touched on ESG a little bit, so I, I want to move a little bit into the S while I talk about what I think are trends. I think um, that diversity uh, and inclusion is is a huge trend in the market as well, and this has to do, you know, not only with uh, with 
you know, service provider organizations becoming more diverse, but also for our supply chain to become more diverse and to really start to look at underutilized businesses in the places where we do business and how do we do more engagement uh, and get more of those businesses involved in our projects. Um, and another movement uh, that is also happening it simultaneously is uh, called Design for Freedom. I don't know if anyone's heard of Design for Freedom, but this is really about try, the, the effort to specify materials in a way where um, we're looking to remove forced labor from the global materials supply chain. Right. And we know that there, modern slavery is still a, uh, an issue in many of the markets where we do business. So I think that um, those are those are other tra- trends that are simultaneously moving forward along with environmental sustainability um, to sort of help round out that whole ESG component. That's a really good point. John. I'm glad you made that. Well, this has been a great uh, conversation. I appreciate you guys taking the time uh, to have this discussion on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. This is this was very interesting. It's great to uh, it's great, especially to talk to someone on the construction side who is this interested and motivated in this because it's all too easy to put a lot of work in on the design side and have all these aspirations and have them not come through when you don't have a a contractor who is educated and fully committed to it. So. Uh, very exciting that you guys are looking so closely at this. I think that's a great a great way to end it, which is to say that that we we are proud to be building and developing structures that we will be proud to put into the universe and will make this world a better place for for our children and future generations. Well said, Brooks. On that note, I think we can call it a wrap. Thanks for listening to Building Conversations. For more episodes like this, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, and the STO Building Group website.